We have a reference question. The Trans Mountain Court Challenge. The long-awaited marijuana legislation has arrived. Never mind a war of words over proportional representation. On the show, BC Today's Shannon Waters, the Vancouver Sun's Bon Palmer and Rob Shaw. Later on, we'll have more pot talk with Terry Lake. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day here in Kamloops. Uh, nothing but blue sky. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone by Rob Shaw, Shannon Waters, and Vaughn Palmer. How's everyone doing? Very good. Good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning. Before we dive into the first issue, just uh, just to provide some clarity, uh, yesterday I teased Mike Farnworth would be joining us over the front half of the show. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he could not do that, although he's going to uh, call me a little later. And so for those of you who listen on the podcast version of this show, uh, we'll have a conversation with Mike Farnworth, just not on the radio portion, unfortunately. Uh, guys, uh, it was uh, one hell of a day yesterday, uh, especially for you guys down at the ledge. It was one thing after another. Uh, why don't we start off on the reference question, uh, which was unveiled to, to much fanfare. Uh, Shannon, why don't we start with you? What, what did you think of what we saw? Well, I wasn't surprised that the government has decided to put forward a set of draft regulations um, as part of the question. That was something that Attorney General David Eby had brought up as one of the options um, open to the province in in putting this case to the court. Um, and sort of the, the benefit that the province could see if these regulations um, are passed, if the court tells them that they do have jurisdiction over them. The advantage there is that then they can sort of move directly ahead rather than if they'd simply posed a question um, to the court, they would then have had to come up with the regulations to figure out where the provincial jurisdiction lies. I thought it was funny, though, that we don't actually have one reference question. We have a set of regulations mm. and three questions that the government has decided to put before the court. But I guess since it took them six weeks to to make this public, they're they're at least being thorough. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, I, 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 it didn't pa- pass by my attention that uh, in unveiling the reference question, this sort of hard line of, of stopping uh, the Trans Mountain expansion seems to have, have somehow sort of vanished. Yeah, the horizon keeps shrinking for the NDP on this. So the election promise was to use every tool in the toolbox to stop the pipeline expansion and do something about the sevenfold increase in tankers. Well, as of yesterday, they're admitting they can't do anything about tankers. Uh, shipping is uh, ships and shipping specifically excluded from these regulations. Um, they're also admitting they can't do anything about the existing shipments of bitumen through the province. And it turns out, in provincial government numbers, there's an awful lot of bitumen being shipped through BC already. Uh, what I think somebody worked it out: 22 million barrels, uh, something like that. Anyway, it's an awful lot of bitumen already going through the province by pipeline, and a lot of bitumen going through the province by rail as well. So, uh, as I say, the NDP's horizon, uh, the toolbox keeps getting smaller, is my reaction. Uh, They were going to use every tool in the toolbox. There aren't very many left. And this is far less ambitious than what the New Democrats let on they were going to do when they were running for office. Yeah, shrinking line of defense. It was interesting to draw that line between the added capacity and the peak flow that currently flows through the province. I mean, uh, if you're going to sell something as being dangerous to the environment, to the community, to the economy as they have, uh, it's either all in or not, Rob. Yeah, I mean, John Horgan got a few questions uh, about that during the press conference from our colleague Mike Smith, who wrote a column about it today, basically saying, if this is so dangerous, what are you doing about the oil flow now? And the answer back from Horgan was, well, 
we're interested in fairness, and we think it's only fair to put these regulations out that would apply to companies that choose to bring in more oil than they have over the past five years. So it's only for the increase in uh, in heavy oil. It's not for the existing capacity. But it was a one of those questions where you know it was difficult for the premier to explain. I I found it amusing uh, in my own way listening to the press conference, thinking about how David Eby had just said that Alberta's plan to issue permits to export oil is totally unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. But British Columbia's plan to issue permits to import oil is totally constitutional. And there are some differences in it that officials tried to explain. BC is focusing on environmental management, whereas Alberta, the argument is, is limiting trade to other provinces to try and punish a province. So that's the constitutional argument. But politically, it just looks like they're basically doing the same thing that Alberta did. And uh, and those are the kind of hypocrisies that the government has to sort of explain, including why it's not doing anything about the existing oil flow as well. Yeah, it's just turned into something of a head-scratcher at this point. Uh, Shannon, I know maybe it's just my sort of knee-jerk reaction, but my thought is if you're worried about an oil spill, would not a 65-year-old pipeline be something higher on your priority list than a brand-new one they're about to install? Yeah, I mean, that sort of intuitively that would seem to make sense. Um, I think, again, you know, the Premier's talking about fairness, and they're also looking at where they think they have the best chance to sort of um, determine how far provincial jurisdiction extends. So, you know, they're not saying necessarily that they have control over over an existing pipeline or even a new pipeline, but what they do want to do is be able to keep an eye on and require sort of more um, more responsibility on behalf of companies who are looking to increase their shipments of bitumen. Um, I agree with you. I think an older pipeline would likely pose more of a risk than, say, new technology. When sort of asked about that, I believe it was Environment Minister George Heyman who essentially said, we introduced these regulations back in October to try and deal with existing issues, sort of... um, upping requirements for spill response and financial responsibility from companies. So he was sort of trying to say, we've done what we can, I think, on this front. Now we're moving ahead to what's coming, and what's coming could be a significant increase in bitumen shipments into the province. Yeah, Vaughn, uh, Dan McTagg made an interesting point, uh, basically saying if they tried to choke off the existing bitumen shipments, uh, never mind the added capacity, uh, they would have trade ramifications, especially to our American friends. A valid point or no? Yeah, I mean, the uh, there's a spur line on the Trans Mountain Line that goes to the American border and that feeds refineries in Washington State. In fact, those refineries in Washington State, I gather, have already expressed interest in purchasing more bitumen if Alberta is going to be sending more bitumen through the twin pipeline. So I don't know how their claim to be able to choke it all off uh, is going to play with the Americans. I think uh, it may be true that we create a NAFTA issue there. Um, And your point about the existing pipeline is the same with the existing tankers. So... Hmm. Uh, Ellis Ross, who's the MLA for Skeena, has been posting pretty much every day on Twitter tankers in these waters. He's got a little app on his phone that identifies all the tankers, and there's, you know, two or three every day going in and out of uh, Washington State through the Strait of Juan de Fuca or in and out of Vancouver. Um, 
the federal government is promising better protection for those. We don't have much protection right now for a spill involving those. So again, uh, you're not doing anything about existing tanker traffic. You have a promise from Ottawa to put more resources out here. The feds, not surprisingly, are saying that's tied to your approval of the pipeline. We're not just going to do this uh, to make things better. Now we want you to come around and, and, and improve the plan, but at the same time accept the pipeline. Yeah, Rob, uh, the Premier, or the Prime Minister, rather, has been teasing uh, legislation and federal help ever since that big Sunday summit with the two Premiers, uh, Rachel Notley and John Horgan. Uh, we don't know, obviously, what is that what that is going to entail or what might come down the pipeline there, uh, pun intended, but uh, could it potentially be a game-changer in, in this argument, or are we too late to that? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I guess the courts are going to have to figure out if, you know, suddenly rushed federal legislation that may or may not pass, I guess it would have to pass for us to be taken seriously, would then apply to this dispute and BC's reference question, which is already filed, and I mean, it's going to turn into a bit of a, even more of a mess, I think. Uh, Ottawa has tried a couple things in the last week that are either olive branches or bluff calling, depending on how you look at it. And one of them was yesterday, on the day that the, the, this reference question came out, there was a, a letter from Federal Environment Minister McKenna who said to BC Environment Minister Heyman, uh, why, you know, if you're concerned about science, if British Columbia is seriously concerned about gaps in science on oil spills, we have 50 federal scientists in this area, why don't we strike a joint advisory committee of scientists and we'll study this issue? And British Columbia's response to that was just sort of a shrug, you know, and, and that was a very interesting uh, bit of a bluff call because I'm not entirely sure British Columbia particularly cares about the science of oil spills as much as they care about being able to delay, pin their delays on a legitimate issue. And that legitimate issue in their mind is science. And you could science it to death and they would still argue there's not enough science. So that was one issue. And the second one that we hear kind of rumblings from Ottawa about is Ottawa wants First Nations supporting the Kinder Morgan pipeline to buy in with them in Alberta, uh, either to buy the pipeline outright or invest in it. And that would, if they were able to give those First Nations help, financial help to do so, the dynamic of this whole thing would change so dramatically. You would have First Nations, the federal government, and Alberta fighting other First Nations in British Columbia and the environmental movement, and it would divide, uh, you know, First Nations along lines of the pipeline. And so that's, those are both more interesting tax from Ottawa, I think, and they're they're going to play out a bit longer. Uh, they're they're certainly poking British Columbia, looking for a weakness here and there, and uh, BC hasn't done much to respond to that. Yeah, Vaughn, you want to weigh in on that? No, I think the you know, the federal government's uh, need to spend political capital on this is is demonstrated, and I think we're still going forward on that. I do think that it is intriguing that they are now thinking of partnering with First Nations on the construction of the project. I, I do think the political dynamic would be very different out here, Shane, if you had a federally built pipeline backed by Alberta and by a bunch of the First Nations along the route. Mm. I think that would change the political dynamic. It would remove that line about, oh, we're just doing what they want in Texas. No, we're doing what they want in Ottawa, Edmonton, and with a bunch of First Nations. Yeah, although there would be a firestorm on taxpayer dollars being used uh, from some, but uh, there's always a firestorm, I guess, when you're talking about any issues these days. Uh, the one aspect that kind of caught my ear is first raised by Rachel Notley, since been seized by Andrew Wilkinson, uh, and that is uh, if B 
CDC wins, uh, Rachel Notley says it's going to result in what she calls economic gridlock. Basically, uh, BC winning will buy, uh, will basically give all the other provinces the same power to then restrict at will certain goods and whatever flowing through their borders. Uh, Shannon, what, what did you think of that point? I think it's significant. I mean, it, it still seems, you know, sort of a very long way away. This court case, Wilkinson himself said that he expects BC's reference case to take about two years um, to work its way hmm. through the courts. The federal government has said they're not interested in partnering on the reference case, which would help them sort of kick it up to a higher court and potentially answer the questions more quickly. But it does have... Um, some sort of serious potential repercussions. Um, John Horgan said yesterday that the province is going after sort of the environmental regulation jurisdiction aspect of the Constitution because he at least believes it's a bit of a gray area. It's not something that has been sort of um, solidly defined yet. And so I think not not least potentially right there. Um, Provinces will then be able to sort of have their own um, say in terms of how they want to handle products like bitumen, which could make it difficult for other provinces, which would seem to have a constitutional sort of impact. But I mean, I'm no lawyer. I don't. I don't really know where this is going. But I think it's going to be an interesting ride. Yeah, uh, Rob, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not stopping the provinces from wandering off into potentially unconstitutional territory on their own. So it's it's kind of like we're already there. The economic gridlock is already there. Saskatchewan is jumping into the fray. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it, it gets settled. I, I agree with, you know, Shannon and and what others have said that had Ottawa chose to take this to the Supreme Court of Canada at the beginning, they could have averted a lot of this. But that was seen as giving in in some ways to BC's um, you know, unconstitutional uh, threats. And so we didn't do it. And now we're in this position where we have no idea how long this court reference case is going to take. It's going to be three to five court of appeal justices. There's going to be interveners. Quebec will get involved. Ottawa, the oil industry, Alberta, the environmental movement, First Nations, written submissions, mm-hmm. oral hearings. It's going to go on. And I mean, the, the province tried to tell us that, oh, it could only take a matter of days because there was uh, a 2002 reference question on the Elections Act and third-party advertising that just took days. But there was another one that took a year. And so <laughs> it, it's, a, it's another, I think, delay tactic that the other provinces and the federal government just don't want any part of. And once you throw it to the courts, you lose control. You lose control of the timing, and you lose control of of, of the solution. And, uh, and everyone's tried to avoid that so far. Yeah, it's like the death by a thousand cuts of a pipeline. Vaughn, uh, just further to that line of thought, should the federal government call a spade a spade, jump into this thing and say, okay, we're going to the Supreme Court? Well, I think they could expedite it by doing that. But, of course, the great concern in Ottawa, which they won't admit publicly, is that British Columbia may have a point. You know, it, it, the court may find, because the environment is a subject of joint regulation by the federal and provincial governments, the court may find that British Columbia has some leeway. Not enough leeway to stop tankers, not enough leeway to stop the project, but they do have the ability to add some regulatory obligations to it. And uh, Ottawa probably doesn't want to know that, uh, because the, the Premier of Alberta is right. If British Columbia makes any progress in this case, um, other provinces could do the same thing for other reasons. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada found just recently that, that you can't stop beer from moving across provincial borders if you're doing it to restrict trade. But you can if you're concerned about health and safety issues. So 
you know, is that all that far removed from what British Columbia is trying to do here? I, you know, I, I think the, I don't think the provincial government is as, case is as strong as the New Democrats made out during the election, but they may uh, get a partial win here. They may have some of their regulations upheld, and if that happens, yes, other provinces could do the same thing. All right. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break here, and then we'll have more on the other side here on Inside Politics and Radio Now. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Shannon Waters, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, uh, we got a few minutes here before the bottom of the hour, sort of a tighter segment. So why don't we talk about uh, the proportional representation battle uh, that the Liberals are now focusing on in the legislature. Vaughn, you wrote an interesting column uh, talking about the deck being stacked. Yeah, I think there's growing evidence that the New Democrats are stacking the entire electoral reform process to get the result they want, which is a yes vote for a switch to proportional representation. And they've done a whole bunch of things along that line. We got some interesting <clears throat> material this week from an FOI request. So you may remember uh, last fall when they had this questionnaire that the public could log in on, they said, well, they'd had a panel of four academic advisors who'd vetted the questionnaire. Well, we got the correspondence this week between the government and the uh, four academic advisors through an access to information request, and those letters show that the government pretty much gagged the academic advisors from the outset. They told them that if they provided advice on the questionnaire, they should not talk to the news media about what advice they gave, and especially don't talk to the news media about whether or not the government accepted your advice. So... You know, uh, to me, that just shows once again the NDP is trying to control the message. Uh, The questionnaire was shaped in the office of Cabinet Minister David Eby. Eby supports the switch to proportional representation. I think he wants to make Premier happy on that. And despite John Horgan saying that Eby will be the neutral arbiter on this, I don't think anybody thinks David Eby is neutral on this. Uh, Maybe John Horgan does. But, uh, yeah, I think we're seeing the deck being stacked. Also, the other issue here, Shane, which I think is emerging, is what will be the question or questions? What are the rules? The New Democrats are not in any rush to get that out. Horgan suggested this week that the fall would be acceptable, which to me is like leaving it to the last minute. And I think you're increasingly wondering, is the public even going to be well-informed enough to make a decision on this? Yeah, it's it's crazy to me. We're what, I mean, if if the campaign was to officially launch with all the information we don't currently have tomorrow we'd have about a seven-month campaign uh and we're just we don't know anything at this point rob yeah i mean when you look back at the other referenda on changing the electoral system the key point in there was the ability to show the public visually how their writings was going to change i mean that that was that was the second point of the second referendum was to take the system and visually show you what it's going to look like for your for your MLAs, and that really ticked people off because they saw their writings grow much larger. They didn't, you know, it was. A, I think that kind of information is critical, and the question now is. Are we giving enough time in this process to develop that kind of information? Are we going to have enough time to not only 
debate the question, I guess, but also provide the material? Or is this whole thing just designed to be such a scramble that we're going to be trying to base our opinions on social media debate? And, I, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds of it. I'm not, I also wonder if we take six months to debate this, we're just going to end up dumber <laughs> on Twitter. And it, this will either be the second coming of Hitler or it's going to be the, you know, the greatest moving democracy in the history of since the Romans. Like, it's, I, I, I wonder a little bit about that, but I also think we got to find a middle ground where we can get the information out in the way people need to see it and not just this nonsense, neutral arbiter stuff from David Eby. Yeah, and the more time we waste, the more we risk uh, devalidating whatever the result is. Uh, Shannon, final question to you on this. Uh, do we buy into David Eby's line of logic that because uh, they've been discussing it in the formation of the questionnaire and doing these consultations, that in essence, uh, that discussion is sort of a part of a de facto campaign and therefore there's nothing to worry about as far as the shortening of an actual campaign itself? I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't really sound like the premier's on the same page either. He basically told us during his availability this week that he doesn't think British Columbians are really talking about um, the electoral reform referendum at this point in time, and he doesn't think they'll have a lot of interest in discussing it over their summer barbecues, as he put it. Um, there wasn't, I was really disappointed. Evie has talked extensively about sort of a record participation in this consultation process and people filling out this questionnaire, but it's a minuscule um, segment of the population that has actually gotten in on this, less than 3% of eligible voters. I think and I worry that people are going to find um, the proposal of proportional representation and the various systems it could represent kind of arcane and intimidating and just decide, you know, that they don't really want to engage with whether or not there could be benefits to changing the electoral system. And I think, I mean, uh, the government has explicitly said that, you know, they, they want a yes, they want to change the system, they're going to be lobbying for it. But I don't think that putting off the discussion and the details of what's coming for an extended period of time, and as Vaughn said, to kind of the last minute in the fall, is going to serve their interests. There's going to be inertia to overcome. People sort of know how the system works at this point in time, and people tend to be wary of new things. So I think if they were really, really keen on getting a yes and changing the voting system, they would be talking about it now. They would be informing and educating British Columbians about their options now. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, uh, as Bill Thielman uh, told me, uh, it's shaping up to be quite a debacle. Uh, we'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour here, get caught up with the news with Bob Price, and on the other side, uh, we'll continue our conversation with Vaughn, Keith, and Shannon here on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, and Shannon Waters. Uh, the other big news that dropped yesterday was the long-awaited marijuana legislation, three separate bills, as a matter of fact. Uh, Rob, why don't you lead us off here? What do you parse out of what we saw yesterday? Yeah, well, I mean, it reiterated the stuff that we already knew from the policy announcements in February. So the age of 19, uh, the public and private uh, stores where you can't have alcohol, the, the liquor distribution branch distributing it, 30-gram possession uh, maximum, that type of thing. It sort of put that all in law. There were a couple interesting things I thought. One was the veto for municipalities and the clear statement from government that if a town or council uh, or city does not want a government or private cannabis shop uh, there, 
they get the final word on it. They simply say no. And uh, a private or government operator has to get that approval from the locals before they can get a provincial permit. So that's a big thing because the municipalities have been dealing with the gray area of these compassionate society shops and mm-hmm. supposed medical shops for quite a while now that they can and can't shut down. Some of them are licensed and not. And so to give that nod to them, I think, from the province is important. And then um, we saw some more details on fines. Um, but there's there's a still, a, I mean, it's, a, it's fascinating to read these massive bills and go through all these technical briefings. And at the end, you still don't know the day that <laughs> marijuana is actually legal because we don't even know that. That's a federal thing. And July 1st is not looking likely anymore. And so it's going to be in the summer at some time. So that's the, the bizarre um, you know, dichotomy of debating a bill in the legislature in such detail, and you don't even know um, when you can actually start toking up, uh, basically. So I, I found that interesting, too. Yeah. Hang in there, Rob. It'll be soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other part of that aspect is uh, uh, this is going to have to mesh with that federal legislation. So while the province can do some, they can't do all. Uh, so then they got to turn and wait to see what Ottawa does and then kind of marry these uh, laws and overlapping jurisdictions together, Vaughn? Yes. So the Prime Minister is the one who said, you know, Cannabis Day, Canada Day, July of this year, but Ottawa has not expedited its legislation, and you're right, the provincial legislation has to dovetail with what they're doing in Ottawa. Uh, In answer to a lot of the questions that Farmworth was asked yesterday, he said, well, you know, Ottawa hasn't said yet. We're waiting to hear from Ottawa. We're waiting to see what they do on this. And that includes not just the date, as Rob said, but take the case of uh, exactly how do you deal with impaired driving. The feds insist there are mechanisms. Uh, technology available to crack down on this, but we don't know exactly how that's going to work. Now, in fairness to Ottawa, I will say one thing, that there is a growing thing with provincial legislation, and it has been growing for many years. It started under the Liberals, it's doing the same under the NDP, which is you get a piece of legislation that's kind of vague, and all the really interesting stuff will come later when the cabinet gets around to passing regulations. We saw that with the ICBC mm-hmm. bill this yeah. week. Uh, you try to figure out exactly what they're going to do to cap rates in ICBC and how it's all going to work. There's more information in the press release than there is in the legislation. Yeah, it's uh, it's a moving uh, moving target, as we say. Uh, Shannon, one of the things that perked up my ear was uh, Mike Farnworth saying his ministry is going to add an enforcement component to deal uh, with this legal marijuana regime. Uh, in essence, it sounds like he's going to go out and have the ability to have staff and, and tools to, for example, shut down rogue operations and, I assume, enforce some kind of you know marijuana rules and regulations on the street, as it were. Uh, what did you read into that? Yes, the Community Safety Unit, which is going to function uh, within Farnworth's Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General. We were told that um, this group of people, they're going to function much like liquor inspectors currently do. Um, There was no sort of detail as to how many of them they were going to be or exactly what they, they were going to be doing, but it sounds like their initial mandate is going to be ensuring that all of the retail outlets have gone through the proper process of 
of licensing. So they are going to be going out and making sure that um, these dispensaries, which in some places like Victoria and Vancouver are already licensed um, by the city to various degrees, that they have gone through um, the new process. And I, I clarified this with Far North yesterday because I was curious um, to see he had said basically that municipalities are going to have sort of the initial veto and if they give the go-ahead um, to a retail outlet, the province will then, you know, hand them a provincial license if they meet all of the criteria. So I asked, you know, does that mean that Vancouver and Victoria are going to sort of have a leg up because they've already approved, mm. you know, dispensaries to operate within their boundaries? And he said, no, they're going to have to go back and start from scratch. Um, so for some areas of the province, I don't think there's going to be... Um, a lot of issues with um, sort of gray market dispensaries that currently exist. I spent some time up in Prince George recently. I can tell you not a lot of uh, cannabis dispensaries up there. <laughs> and the ones that do pop up tend to get shut down by the RCMP fairly quickly. Uh, whereas here in Victoria and certainly in Vancouver, which I visited the other weekend, there are a lot of businesses already up and running and approved by the municipalities. Then on the other side, you have the city of Richmond, which has basically said they are going to ban cannabis uh, in sort of all of its forms. No public consumption or extremely restricted public consumption yeah. and no stores whatsoever within the city limits. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, Rob, uh, something on your Twitter stream caught my attention yesterday. This uh, It was sort of a, a contradiction that was pointed out on how and, and where you can smoke in public versus this you-can't-be-intoxicated thing. I guess it kind of speaks to the, the nuances that have yet to clarify themselves and probably will take a while to. Yeah, and it builds on Vaughn's point that some of these bills, you read them and you try to understand them, and cabinet is really what fills in the details later. But the way this was explained to me is that there's a long list of places in the public you are not going to be allowed to smoke or consume cannabis. So that's playgrounds, school properties, anywhere where there's near children's or sports fields, uh, health facilities inside your vehicle, on a ferry. There's a very long list of places. And then, if it's not mentioned on this list, it falls under municipal rules for smoking tobacco and vaping. And so, you know, the municipalities have different rules about how many meters outside of doorways and that type of thing. But there's another section in the in the law that says you can't be intoxicated in public. And when I asked government about that, they said it's very similar to alcohol intoxication. And the way that that works is it's basically a nuisance offense. They don't look at you walking down the street with bloodshot eyes and a bag of Cheetos in your hand and <laughs> say you might be intoxicated on drugs and pull you over. And They just use it if you're in a bar at two in the morning and you're causing a ruckus and you're out on the street. So it, it, it doesn't it's kind of, I guess, going to be part of that evolving way that law enforcement and the province actually cracks down on whatever we deem to be intoxication under marijuana and how we even measure that and what technology even exists to measure someone's um, THC levels and, and, and all of that. So the, the bill is filled with things that you read and you scratch your head and go, I'm not sure how that's going to work. And I don't think government really knows how it's going to work either. Uh, some of the other nuances on this, Vaughn, uh, some of these people who have crusaded uh, for marijuana to be legalized are about to, I think, uh, be in for something of a shock when uh, all of the rules and laws uh, fall down on their heads. Uh, I noticed on Twitter this morning, Jody Emery's admitting that she's essentially screwed uh, because he, she wouldn't pass a background check. That's true. The only way you're going to... The, the government is taking steps that I think are commendable to make sure that organized crime doesn't get into 
the marijuana dealing business and in fact they get them out of the marijuana dealing business but it also means if you have any kind of a record uh, you may not get a license or a permit and that's going to be a problem um, I think the other thing that farmer said yesterday that may be the most accurate thing he said yesterday was we're going to be working through this for years mm. I think he's right about that look this is an enormous change for society and there will be a huge struggle around it one example uh, there are lots of people out there that have allergies that find pot smoke revolting uh, they are that's going to be an issue in public places that's going to be an issue in rental housing in condominiums and strata title in renting properties uh, there's a whole range of issues out there for landlord and tenant that uh, you know it, it's not going to be an easy transition there are, you know the people out there who are on a mission from God to you know legalize marijuana are going to be running up against the people that uh, you know are, are glad we finally won the battle against smoking in public places mm. and the last thing they want is to go back to being able to smell dope everywhere yeah absolutely i think there's going to be a rude awakening coming once the legalization passes final word to you shannon Yep, I think Vaughn's right on that. I mean, you know, there's definitely some bright sides, like you said, getting rid of organized crime, uh, potentially better controls on quality, um, keeping the product hopefully somewhat more out of the hands of those under the age of 19. Um, but this is the thing. When government comes in and, and they legalize something, they also tend to highly regulate it. And especially here in B.C., people have been used to just kind of not having a whole lot of regulation around cannabis consumption. And as both Farnworth and the Premier have admitted, BC has both a very robust cannabis culture um, and very robust sort of cannabis production already. So that is something that uh, the provincial government has said they are going to try and sort of protect and keep the same in BC is, is ensuring that the federal government um, include small producers, craft cannabis, so to speak, uh, in in the legal production mechanism when it comes forward. But I think it's going to be very different when we finally do, you know, do get the date for official legalization. It's going to be a very different time than what we've been sort of seeing, especially in BC up until now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, guys, my uh, my thanks to you as, as always. I appreciate uh, the insight and, and all of the uh, words of wisdom. And uh, I know we're taking a bit of a break here and Vaughn I'll see you live in studio on our next show at the end of May very good thanks Shane have a good time off all right thanks, thanks guys Shane. talk to Bye -bye. you soon thanks Shane all right we'll take a quick break on the other side former Kamloops MLA and health minister Terry Lake joins us radio nl radio nl.com local first keeping you informed from both sides for Kamloops computer center this is radio nl's inside politics with Shane Woodford Good morning and welcome back. Uh, pleasure to be joined on the phone by uh, a man whose life has gone to pot since he left politics, Terry Lake. Morning, Shane. Uh, what's this about you taking holidays? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm taking off, uh, let's see, I leave Tuesday. Uh, I'm back on May 22nd, so the show's taking a bit of a hiatus. Good for you. Yeah, World Hockey Championships in Denmark. I'm pretty, so uh, pretty stoked. That will be pretty fun, but yeah. let, let me just challenge you on something. Sure, go ahead. To your inside politics, gang. That you know the public wouldn't uh, you know kind of know what hit them when when legalization occurred. Do you honestly think that there are going to be more people smoking cannabis in Vancouver after legalization than there are today? I don't think so. I don't think the world will change very much at all. 
Well, I, that's not how I sort of, that wasn't my sort of perspective on approaching the question, Terry. My perspective was, is there is activities going on now. People are smoking in public, walking around, probably more in Vancouver than here, obviously. But uh, there are activities going on now that, that once the sort of framework of legalization occurs and, um, you know, dispensaries and other things that are operating in, in that sort of gray area right now are going to have to abide by the laws of the land. No ifs, ands, or buts. And there's going to be a change there. That's how I was approaching it. Not that Oh, right. anything would increase. It's just that there are some things going on, especially among some of the pro-marijuana people, where suddenly, you know, they're going to have to abide by the law, and I think there's going to be a bit of a wake-up there. I think I think that's true. You know, government will have the tools and, of course, the incentive uh, to do away with the black market if they want the revenues from cannabis. And we see in Colorado State, rent uh, revenue from cannabis exceeds uh, revenue from alcohol to the mm-hmm. government and that goes to fund schools and other public uh, institutions. So, you know, they, they will be worried about losing that revenue for sure. Okay, uh, you've had some time to parse out the legislation. I know we talked to you a little bit yesterday, but I'm sure you've since uh, sunk your teeth into it to kind of understand what the provincial government here has done. Uh, so a day later, uh, what do you think about what, what's on the table? Well, not too many surprises. You know, they're leaving uh, options for private retailers, although they are ensuring that they're decoupling the retailers from the licensed producers, which they had signaled uh, before, so there's no vertical integration. And that's because they don't want big uh, cannabis uh, taking over the whole industry. They want to leave room for smaller businesses and and craft cultivators and and craft uh, producers uh, in terms of extraction and processing. Uh, to be part of the industry and then private retailers uh, separate from that. And I don't think that's a a bad thing at all. I think that uh, increases the diversity of the business. Um, There's some things that are a bit of a head-scratcher, like the 30-gram limit, which is the limit for one person. But if you've got more than one person living in a house, then the total amount can't be more than 30 grams. And Mm. you can imagine how many... 21, 22-year-old students live together, and, you know, they're going to have to do personal inventories of everyone's cannabis, you know, to make sure they're uh, inside the law. You know, that one's a bit of a head-scratcher, but I guess the intent is that people aren't stockpiling it and, you know, reselling it, and so the the, uh, details of the regulations and the enforcement uh, will be interesting. From an industry perspective, Terry, what's left outstanding? And we're, we're kind of having a picture that was very fuzzy and it continually starts to come into focus. It's not quite entirely in focus yet, but what, what questions out there are you guys looking to see answered? Well, most of our questions are really with the federal government. Uh, you know, we, we are still waiting, of course, for the Senate to get the bill back to uh, the House of Commons. There may be amendments that have to be dealt with. So, we're still living in this, uh, what I like to term, running through the forest at night. You know, we're not quite mm-hmm. sure where the trees are yet. Uh, but in terms of the provincial regimes, they're more or less following, uh, you know, the expected pattern. And uh, so the licensed producers, I don't think, are too surprised by any of the regulatory regimes. Uh, and, you know, I think when we look at consuming cannabis, I, I heard people concerned about smoking and vaping in public. And, of course, it's being treated like uh, tobacco consumption in public. But, of course, more and more people are moving away from smoking and vaping to uh, different forms of cannabis, whether it's oils or eventually edibles. And so, you know, those won't be treated quite the same as smoking and vaping. So I think we will see a, a more diverse uh, cannabis consumer in the future. Uh, but, you know, when you go down to Washington State, I guess I'd like to 
reassure people that the world doesn't change that dramatically. In fact, you go down to Washington State, and I know lots of folks go down to Bellingham, uh, they don't really notice that there's any difference at all. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think a year or two out, once legalization comes in, it's just going to be life as normal. Uh, I'm curious to know from from sort of your perspective, as private businesses now get poised and ready to get off the starting line, uh, what did you think of the, the powers or the muscle granted to municipalities? I don't know if you ever heard, but there was an example used uh, on the panel by Shannon Waters pointing out Vancouver will likely be very liberal in allowing people in, uh, but Richmond has already come out drawing a hard line on the other side of the scale saying, no way, no way. Jose. Well, as a former councillor and mayor, I've always been of the opinion that local governments should determine the look and feel of their communities within reason, of course. Uh, and so I'm, I think it's a good thing that local governments have uh, the right to, uh, to look at these applications. They have to, according to this legislation, uh, develop a process. So I, it's not clear to me if a, a community like Richmond could just say no without actually entertaining uh, the applications and, and putting them through some sort of review process, whether it's a public hearing or something like that, uh, because people do have a right to do business, and then the local government has to take into account the feelings of, uh, of their residents. But they also have to have a process, a fair process, uh, to deal with that. So I think all local governments... We'll, uh, we'll work on this, and, and some will have a more liberal attitude towards it than others, that's for sure. Uh, in your role with the Hydropothecary Corporation, I know that the last few months, if not year or so, you guys have been ramping up in order to create supply, as have your competitors. On the supply question, when we become legal, are you confident that that, that supply, uh, that demand will be met or no? Well, I think there's some real concern that uh, initially there might be a, a very tight supply, a lot of Licensed producers like us are expanding rapidly, but those greenhouses and facilities aren't necessarily, uh, you know, full of plants yet. So there may be a, a tight supply. Uh, again, we don't have edibles, so that's going to ameliorate that somewhat. And with the delay of, uh, you know, the retail stores opening, I think until September is more realistic. Yep. That will help ease the supply issue. And then 18 months out, we could see an oversupply because everyone is expanding mm-hmm. like crazy. And so there may be some price adjustments that, that occurred uh, due to market forces at that time. All right. Uh, final word to you, and I'm curious on the answer on this, uh, both in your current occupation, but also as former health minister. Uh, when legalization occurs, what do you think the future of events like 420 are? Well, I think 420 will become a celebration more than a protest. Uh, in many ways, it's that already. I think, you know, particularly when it comes to young people uh, participating or being exposed, uh, that the police and civic officials will take a slightly harder view. Uh, and it'll take a while. I mean, the market will evolve. Uh, events like 420 will evolve and uh, become more sort of normalized, uh, much like alcohol is uh, today, so that you know, it's just integrated in our, into our lifestyle, and we minimize the, the adverse effects. And I think we always have to keep that in mind, that people who don't want to consume or be exposed should have their rights protected as well. All right. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the time, and it's good to talk to you. Thanks, Shane. Have fun. Thanks, man. Will do. That's uh, Terry Lake, currently with the Hydropothecary Corporation. Also, uh, of course, as we know, uh, Camelot's North, former MLA and health minister. Take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, BC's Public Safety Minister, Mike Barnworth. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. 
Welcome back. Glad to be joined on the phone by BC's Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth. Mike, welcome. So uh, obviously a lot of moving parts here, as you and I were just talking about, uh, sort of an, an evolving situation with this uh, marijuana legislation. Um, I, first and foremost, uh, you're going to have to marry whatever you guys have tabled to what Ottawa does. I mean, there's overlapping jurisdictions. There's the medical marijuana versus the retail marijuana. There's all this stuff. So, uh, And as you've clearly stated, there's a lot depending on Ottawa. So from your perspective, uh, what are the big question marks with the federal legislation that you guys need to see? Um, there's a couple of uh, key uh, question marks that uh, are, are critical for us to have a better understanding on. Um, when it comes to drug impaired driving, it is, it is Bill C-46. That's the federal bill that will set the framework and the laws around drug impaired driving in Canada, and that's one, the one that the provinces are going to have to deal with. There's been a lot of concern about that from police chiefs, that this is being rushed. Um, oh, uh, the, there's an agreement to pass Bill C-45, which deals with the legalization of cannabis by the uh, end of June, and there still may be amendments to that. But in the case of C-46, we don't know what the technology is going to be. Um, we, there are issues around uh, training on whatever technology is chosen. Uh, that's an expense. It takes time, it takes time to, uh, to train police officers. Uh, and so there's a, some, some significant uh, unknowns in that area that we really need um, answers to as soon as possible. Uh, any thought to, I know you're waiting to see what the device is going to be, but any thought to the saliva testing component, uh, if it is indeed a saliva testing device, there's been some concerns already raised about, uh, some gray areas and some problems there. Yeah, again, this comes back to knowing exactly what, uh, what the, uh, the device is. We keep hearing from the feds that no, everything's going to be fine, but, you know, there are issues around the saliva testing machine that we're aware of that we've got concerns about. And so if, if, if there's not clear clarity uh, from the federal government, there's going to be a lot of gray area. And I'm, you know, I've been quite frank about this. I expect that you will see litigation, um, that uh, there will no doubt be litigation on this. Um, so that's, that's crucial from the, uh, the road safety side of things. Uh, on other areas, there's a lot of questions um, still around, you know, um, some of the regulations that, that on the legalization. Are there going to be additional amendments made to the Bill C-45 that's currently uh, in Ottawa in the Senate? What will that mean? Um, you know, so we've built flexibility into the legislation that we've tabled yesterday to deal with uh, potential changes or additions uh, in the federal legislation because we operate within that framework. I mean, you know, I've heard people say, oh, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? We can only operate within that federal framework. The province has responsibility for distribution and retail, but in terms of licensing of production, for example, um, the testing of product, all those rest with, uh, the, the, with the federal government, as does, uh, you know, the requirements around uh, the drug-impaired driving. Uh, still on the drug-impaired driving, Mike, uh, will there be a dispute sort of resolution process for uh, drivers who feel that perhaps uh, maybe the device is, is, is incorrect or feel that they have a case where they've been, they've been wronged and it's just, they're just not guilty of this? That's why I said I expect there will be uh, plenty of, of litigation. Um, you know, there will be processes um, that, you know, people will be able to, to go through. But I, I, as I said, I fully expect um, litigation on, uh, you know, whenever a change like this takes place, uh, particularly when it deals with a, a significant shift in public policy, such as the legalization of cannabis, uh, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, um, 
new technology in terms of de- uh, in terms of determining whether someone is impaired or not. Um, so there's a, there's going to be a, there's a lot of work to do. As I said, we're just at the start. Uh, zero tolerance for young drivers, uh, drivers that are, that are going through the graduated licensing program. Uh, that all sounds fine and good. Uh, just some nuances there I was wondering about. What happens if you have a young person who's in a home where the parents are legally using their own marijuana and uh, the young person isn't but happens to, you know, inhale, like you can call it the Ross Ribliati <laughs> defense, um, but, uh, and then they go out and then they fail a test even though they haven't imbibed themselves? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've heard this one. I guess I'd say a couple of things. First off, um, you know, the, the police don't have the ability and can't just randomly, you know, stop you and randomly uh, want to test you uh, for, for, uh, for cannabis. They can't just do that. Uh, and, and the second point I'd make is we are aware of this question. And it, again, it relates back to, okay, what is the technology that is going to be used at the federal level that the federal government is going to put in place by C-46? And so we need, as, as soon as possible, to know, you know what levels of testing, what kind of test is going to be there, what kind of technology that they're using. Um, but it would strike me, too, that you'd have to be uh, around an awful lot uh, to, to, you know, to just absorb something. So. But we're aware of it. Okay, fair enough. And I, I'm assuming that, I mean, you've made the reference yesterday that th- these things are going to take, in some cases, years. I mean, we're, there's going to be a lot of wrinkles here. In there's there's going to be a lot of wrinkles. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that, you know, we've tried to do is, particularly because so much of this right now d- depends on, on the final versions from Ottawa, but also the, we know that things will change over time, is we've built in that we've got the flexibility through regulation to deal with these kinds of issues if they arise. Uh, on the municipal side, uh, you've, uh, I think UBCM will probably, and local governments are probably pretty happy with the amount of muscle you've given them. I'm curious uh, to what extent, though, and I don't know if you're listening to the show earlier, but a point was made uh, by Shannon Waters that Vancouver is already signaling pretty liberal intent to set up uh, marijuana shops, uh, be they public or private. However, Richmond is drawing a very firm line in the sand that they don't want to see anything at all. So uh, can a local government, Mike, literally say, okay, we're closing the door or do they have to have some kind of marijuana representation in the city no they don't have to have representation in the city in that they can uh, they can decide communities can decide um, what works for them and, and we're very clear from this right from the beginning that uh, one size does not fit all and that uh, you know local gov- local communities will make decisions on whether they want you know a government store or a private store or a mix of both or no stores at all um, and that um, you know the the, the council uh, will be you know is is accountable to their electorate uh, for those decisions. There will be the ability uh, to access recreational cannabis uh, through an online uh, portal as well. Um, so that is in development. So it's not like if someone said if a community says no, that they you know the residents there don't have the ability to access. They still will. It's just that um, you know uh, it may not be in the, as in the Richmond, I think, is the most notable one that has said that they don't want any any, any retail outlets. Um, but uh, yeah, we're not forcing uh, stores or retail outlets down the uh, down the throat of the community. All right, and I guess in Richmond's case, which it, it strikes me, it's it's kind of a weird one because I mean they could try and close the doors, I guess, but I mean 
50-minute drive gets you into Delta or into Vancouver, and people can avail themselves of any assortment of shops there, right? And, and that's and that's why I say, I mean, it depends on, you know, it, it's going to come down to, you know, the, the, the in that case, the local community, and, and people will still have the ability to get. And that and that, and that does not take away um, from the, the general ability of, you know, of an individual from Richmond um, to have the, the legal amount of cannabis in their position. The local government has the ability to say, um, yeah, we don't want a store in our community, but that's all. They can't say, you know, you can't have the 30 grams, which the province and the federal government say you can have. Uh, let's talk about enforcement. Uh, my ears perked up when you were talking yesterday about basically it sounds like you're going to create an enforcement wing within your own ministry uh, to basically enforce the laws of the land and, and as I recall you saying, uh, and uh, act on sort of rogue or, or illegal operations that, that may be out there the day after uh, legalization occurs. Uh, first off, what kind of work and what kind of staffing goes into that? And then, uh, B, Mike, what extent of enforcement are you guys going to practice? Is it going to be swift and fast or, or what? Um, a, a couple, first off, we have to get things, you know, staffed and up and running. That that does take uh, a bit of time, but that work is is ongoing right now, and and the goal is really simple. We know uh, that uh, communities and and there'll be a lot of applications, a lot of interest, and we expect uh, you know the process to go by as it lay, as it will be laid out. But we also know that there are those who think that, uh, who have, you know, in essence, done their nose at the city of Vancouver already and, and established saying, hey, we don't care what the city of Vancouver says, we're opening up a shop anyway. Well, if you, if you get, um, if you are licensed um, and you've applied for license and you don't get a license, then you're not going to be able to, to remain in, in business. And that's what the uh, the uh, the community safety uh, enforcement will be uh, within the ministry is going after illegal illegal sellers, um, and then in the same way that LDB we do with liquor, uh, that enforcement uh, the the uh, LDB will will ensure that compliance with laws from from licensed retail outlets. So is that going to be a tricky bit of business, Mike? Because you're going to have to battle the inertia of this gray area we've had for a bunch of years now with, uh, as you mentioned, dispensaries and, and marijuana operations thumbing their nose at the city, be it in Vancouver or here in Kamloops. And suddenly we're going to have a legal framework of which they must abide by. Uh, so is that going to be a bit of a tricky situation to kind of come in the day after legalization and say, okay, play by the rules or you are done? And, and, and what we're doing now is we want to start by having an education process around what legalization means, um, what it will mean in terms of licensing, what you can do and what you cannot do. Uh, there'll be a portal that describes all of those things. Um, that's why we've also put in place administrative penalties um, so that people understand that, uh, you know, here's what the rules are and here's the penalties, and we're looking at using an administrative uh, system to deal with that. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I've no doubt that there will be challenges. Um, it's taken Colorado, for example, um, four years to get the, the black market down to where it's only 30%. Um, but I expect that, uh, um, you, know, common, you know, there'll be common sense uh, in terms of how this is done. Uh, our focus is going to be getting, uh, you know, legal stores up and running, both in the public sector and the private sector. And I expect as more and more private, sto- private stores and and government stores uh, come online, you will see a decrease uh, in the number of, of illegal operations. 
Uh, on that note, uh, I was looking at the legislation, and there seems to be, and I don't know, I guess maybe it goes back to the nuances of, of what's going on, but uh, there's really strict guidelines about where you can smoke in public, where you can vape, where you can't vape, all that kind of stuff. But there's another section of the act that says you can't be intoxicated in public, which I don't, I don't know, I guess, how you define intoxicated. Does that mean, Mike, that you can't be high in public? How, how do you sort of see that? No, that doesn't, it does not mean that. And it's similar, it is similar uh, to, to sections in, in legislation that govern alcohol and as well as tobacco and it in essence you'd have to be you know literally falling down a danger to yourself or a danger to other people it does not mean you're walking down the street having the giggles and laughing and eating a bag of Doritos um, it's you know it's no different than if you came out of a pub uh, and you've had you know a, uh, you know a few beers and you're feeling mellow and you're laughing that's that's not it at all. It is, it is there in the same way it's there in some other pieces of legislation where someone is being a danger to themselves or to others. All right. Uh, I'm curious to know the answer to this question. How do you see the future of the 420 event play out in this new spotlight of, of laws and health regulations and et cetera? Because that's an event in the past that has that is collectively thumbed its nose at the establishment and, and uh, from the organizers' comments on Twitter uh, continues to, to plan to. Well, the reality is it's Coming, in essence, less of a protest, more of a trade fair. And so, when you have, uh, you know, the city or they can't, if the parks board says you need a permit or the city says you need a permit, you're going to have to get a permit, just like every other, um, uh, every other trade fair or festival. And this idea that we can say, oh, we don't care what you what you say, that you know we're doing it anyway, um, that's just that's not on. So in the future, these events will have to conform to every other event that's held, be it in Vancouver, Kamloops, whatever. They're going to have to abide by the law. They they should be abiding by the law. Uh, And I'm quite sure, you know, legalization and the rules in place, um, that I'm quite sure that, you know, uh, Parks Board or the city, if I were them, would work with 420 to find a suitable location. Um, and at the same time ensure that, you know, that all the, the, the rules and, and regulations are in fact followed. Everybody else seems to manage to be able to do it. Yeah, and I think that's been the frustration uh, from talking to other groups when I was in Vancouver, Mike, is he, they you do his block party, uh, you hold whatever event. I mean, they got to go through all the hoops and regulations, and then they see this group kind of skip into town and, and basically throw their finger up at all this and set up shop, and I don't think that's how it's going to sort of continue to be. No, oh, and it shouldn't. Um, final question on this, uh, uh, as we kind of forge for ahead on the marijuana legislation. Um, in your mind, what are the biggest questions as far as the next shoes to drop? Is it just purely Ottawa, or as we continue to evolve this here in the province, sort of what are you looking at as the next I th- thing? I think it's going to be a number of things. I mean, clearly one is Ottawa. Uh, we've got to, we still have to deal with the issue of edibles, which will probably be another year. Once that's in place, um, then I think we can start to look at things, you know, there's, there's questions been asked about the ability to do, uh, uh, you know, quote, farm gate sales, as it were, uh, from licensed producers. Uh, that's something that uh, we may want to, uh, that I could see uh, us then having to deal with in terms of, of regulations down the road. Um, so uh, then there's the, the licensing itself in terms of getting that up and running and just getting the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of the legislation uh, up and working in time for the legalization date, whenever that is. Again, that's something else we'd like to know. I mean, it was initially supposed to be July. Now it's we're told late summer. Uh, firm date would be uh, would be uh, would be particularly helpful. All right. Uh, how are you doing on on negotiating with UBCM as far as cutting municipalities a share of the pie? 
Um, that's still an issue that's uh, being worked on. Um, I know the Ministry of Finance is looking at a lot of the issues around that. So uh, again, you know, we've been working with local governments on the whole cannabis issue right from the get-go, and we're working with them on this one as well. <laughs> and how happy are you to see your workload diminish a little bit? Um, well, I'm glad <laughs> that we've got the legislation table, but I don't think the workload is going to diminish just yet. All right. Hey, good to hear from you. Thanks. Okay, that was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, and that's it for today's edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to my guests, Vaughn Palmer, Rob Shaw, Shannon Waters, Terry Lake, and Mike Farnworth. We're taking a bit of a break with the show as I take some holidays. We'll be back on May 25th, and it's going to be a huge return show, a special afternoon edition of Inside Politics live in studio here in Kamloops. Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Bill Good. We also have a ton of special guests lined up to come your way. So we'll see you then. CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news.